In reality television, the people are represented by two separate but equally obsessed attorneys. This is their podcast. Hi, I'm Ceci. And I'm Angela. And this is the Bravo Docket. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Bravo Docket. Today, we thought we would cover the recent updates that have been floating around the blogs and the media concerning Erica. She was recently served with some papers. We've had an episode covering those claims, but we want to do a deep dive into that complaint, talk about the earrings issue. Just get into all of it. There's just been so much. I kind of want to title this one, Not Another Erica Episode or something like that, but <laughs> it is. It's another one. And it's going to be a little bit different from our prior episodes. I think we usually like to summarize things and not really read so much from the pleadings. But this one, I think the complaint is so good, like the racketeering complaint that we'll eventually get to, that I think it would be helpful to kind of go through it paragraph by paragraph and read the facts to you guys that have been alleged here by Edelson. So just forewarning, there will be some reading and we'll give our thoughts. Anything to add? No, not to that. I think we've all seen the recent images of Erica being served in the airport after getting back from her vacation, I think, in Hawaii with Lisa Rinna. And then there's been some postings of some other wild kind of complaints from a pro se plaintiff. So hopefully this will answer most, if not all, of everyone's questions that have been flooding our inbox. Yeah, you guys really flooded our Instagram wanting to know what was going on. And we'll get there, but it's a wild ride. So let's start with the earrings. I think that's the easiest, most straightforward legal issue. We've made some posts about it on Instagram, but I don't think we've talked about it yet on the podcast. So what is up with the earrings? Well, right now, the status of the earrings is, and we'll kind of start where they're at now and maybe work backwards a little bit, but the status of the earrings is that Erica lost her motion to keep them. She's been ordered to return them. The bankruptcy judge has determined that, according to the law, it doesn't matter whether or not Erica knew where the money came from or whether or not it was her fault that they were purchased with funds that were misappropriated from a client trust account, and therefore she is not entitled to possession of them and must return them. She's appealed Yeah, she recently appealed the decision, but some background, so stepping two steps back. So the trustee in the law firm bankruptcy filed a motion against Erica saying that she had to return these $750,000 earrings 
that Tom purchased using funds directly from a client trust account, using settlement money that he obtained on behalf of victims he was representing. Erica fought back. She agreed to put them in escrow, so they were kind of floating in between their possession until there was a judgment made, and then there was a judgment made. In We put this on our Instagram, but I wanted to point out that included in their motion was, in the trustee's motion, was a check that Tom wrote. So they have the check from the Girardi and Keese client trust account to the jeweler who made these very expensive earrings. Like, it's just so clear. There's There's a check. I don't know how she's, we don't have an appellate brief yet, so I don't know what her argument is going to be. She made some creative arguments, I think, in her opposition. Do you want to talk about those? In our Instagram post, I translated it from the attorney language to plain language. And essentially, she made a couple arguments. And one was that, okay, fine, even if we admit the earrings were purchased with money from a client trust account, that money either belonged to Girardi, Erica's husband, as attorney's fees, or it was taken from victims and never belonged to him. So either way... I don't have to give the earrings to the bankruptcy court. She made that argument in legal terms, but that was essentially the argument she was making. So that's one reason that they argued that the trustee's motion had to be denied. And then another one was they tried to argue a statute of limitations deadline, basically saying it's too late. The bankruptcy trustee missed the deadline. So even if Tom bought the earrings with stolen funds, you can't take them from me now. They're not arguing just so it's clear that the trustee delayed or that it was somehow the trustee's fault. It's just that this wasn't discovered until after the statute of limitations, according to Erica's attorneys, had run. So they're saying, nope, you can't you can't have them because it's too late. And the bankruptcy trustee just wasn't really having either one of those arguments and laid out the legal reasons for why those arguments do not apply. Yeah. So then there was a judgment and we thought that was the end of that. But we'll see what she argues in her appellate brief. All right. Now the Edelson lawsuit. So we first did an episode on this, episode 33, called it. It was like the Hells Angels. The Hells Angels and the Girardi Family Enterprise. Yeah. So... We first talked about it then when it was just a draft complaint that Adelson had stated that he was intending to file on behalf of some of the Lion Air victims, but it has since been filed. It was filed July 7th, 2022, and at the time, we didn't really dive that far into the facts, but I think it's worth reviewing them now. I think Adelson probably has the most familiarity with what's been going on behind the scenes because he was involved in the Lion Air case as co-counsel with Tom's firm. So it's very interesting. He has access to emails that he put in there, just a lot of purported evidence. Again, these are all just allegations. So, But before we dive into that, do you want to talk just a refresher on what racketeering is? Because that is the main claim against Erica. Yes. So our previous episode, Hells Angels and the Girardi Family Enterprise, went into detail in the history of RICO, which is why the Hells Angels were brought up, because the Hells Angels leader was actually able to defeat a racketeering charge in California. And I just thought that was really interesting. Also, the Hells Angels leader was way better at PR than Erica Girardi, amazingly. The law of RICO or the Racketeering Influence Corrupt Organizations Act. If you're interested in that as well and you haven't listened to that episode, not only will you get a lot of details about 
you will get some background on the history of the Hells Angels in that really fascinating case. But I just wanted to go over very quickly just the elements of RICO because I want you guys as part of getting your JD in reality TV by listening to our podcast to kind of think like a lawyer a little bit. And so I'm going to quickly run down the elements of RICO at a high level. And then as we're reading the details from the complaint, I want you to kind of think about whether or not, in your opinion, they apply. So to establish a civil RICO claim, a plaintiff, which in this case is Jay Edelson, must establish conduct of an enterprise through a pattern of racketeering activity known as predicate act causing injury to the plaintiff's business or property. Concerning the first element, the conduct is defined as participation in the operation or management of the enterprise itself. Concerning the second prong, a RICO enterprise, if not a legal entity, is, quote, a group of persons associated together for a common purpose of engaging in a course of conduct. So that element, the way that's defined, that's, that's, pretty, that's a pretty broad definition. It further requires a purpose, relationships among those associated with the enterprise, and sufficient longevity to pursue the purpose. The third element, the pattern requires at least two predicate acts that have a relationship to each other and constitute a threat of continued racketeering activity. So trying to translate that into plain language, again, if you think about a mafia enterprise or what the government was alleging against the Hells Angels, it's that maybe not everyone in this group is doing the same criminal activity, but their activities are related to each other or intending to further the overall goal of committing these acts. So when it comes to Erica and the statements of Erica's attorney and her defense that we're going to talk about later on, I want you guys to think about this, and this is from a United States Supreme Court case. There's no requirement that the conspirator agree to commit predicate acts of racketeering activity, and there's no requirement that any one conspirator itself agree to conduct the affairs of the enterprise. Rather, quote, so long as they share a common purpose, conspirators are liable for the acts of their co-conspirators. Thus, a RICO conspirator must simply, quote, intend to further an endeavor which, if completed, would satisfy all of the elements of the substantive criminal offense, but it suffices that he or she adopt the goal of furthering or facilitating the criminal endeavor. So I just wanted to point those out as we read the facts of the complaint so you guys can practice thinking like lawyers and kind of make your own determinations as to whether or not what's pled in the complaint, if true, meets those elements. Yeah, hers is also a conspiracy claim. Oh, yes. And again, we covered that in so much detail in the last episode that we did on this that I would encourage you to listen to that episode if what we're talking about here sounds kind of confusing. And also, we've talked about conspiracy a lot with Jen Shaw and all of those episodes. So I feel like if you've been listening for a while, you guys are probably fairly knowledgeable about conspiracies. Yeah, I just wanted to point that out because it's a little like lower of a burden that they have to prove here because hers is just conspiracy to commit racketeering and then the other partners have straight racketeering claim. Yes. If conspirators have a plan which calls for some conspirators to perpetrate the crime and others to provide support, the supporters are as guilty as the perpetrators, which thinking about that as we read the facts as alleged in the complaint, it kind of makes more sense as to how Edelson could have a good faith basis for making some of the allegations against Erica. A conspiracy, according to the United States Supreme Court, and this is an older case, not with the current court, I'll point out, but a conspiracy may exist even if a conspirator does not agree to commit or facilitate each and every part of the substantive offense. 
the partners in the criminal plan must agree to pursue the same criminal objective and may divide up the work, yet each is responsible for the acts of each other. Sessie's absolutely right. That's a very, that's a broad sort of net to catch people in this crime, alleged crime. Okay. Shall we read the complaint? Yes. Okay. So I can start and then, well, like popcorn. It's like second grade again. Well, what? You don't know what popcorn is? No. Oh, it was like a reading thing, like in elementary school. If you were reading like a book together or something out loud and like sitting with the class, then I would go, mm, when, when I'm done reading, I'd go, mm, popcorn, Angela. And then you'd read like two pages or whatever the teacher said, and then you choose someone else to popcorn to. Oh, I went to public school in Central Florida. We're lucky I can read. So I don't remember <laughs> playing that game. It's just like a cute way to like switch off who gets to read. Anyway, I'll say <laughs> popcorn Angela when I'm done. <laughs> Should we give it a new name for our like? <laughs> it's popcorn because it's cute. It's like it pops over to Angela. Okay. I don't know. Okay. <laughs> well, we know our pace. I feel like I'm just going to get hungry. <laughs> I am hungry and popcorn is one of my favorite foods. I know. So. <laughs> okay, let's do this. Nature of the action. From the outside, the Girardi Keys law firm appeared to be doing all the things that an ultra-successful, top-tier plaintiff's law firm should do. Represent injured clients in difficult cases, secure groundbreaking settlements, and win headline-grabbing trial victories. The firm's founder and namesake, Thomas Girardi, quote Tom, was a celebrity both inside and outside the courtroom, and was viewed by many as perhaps the most prominent plaintiff's lawyer in the country. But inside the firm's doors... The story was completely different, as the layers have been pulled back more and more each day with pending bankruptcies of Girardi, Keese, and Tom, and the torrent of claims and investigations that came in the wake of the firm's collapse. The real story is one that seems like a tale out of a John Grisham novel. Girardi, Keese was little more than a criminal enterprise disguised as a law firm. Indeed, the Girardi, Keese firm operated what we now know was the largest criminal racketeering enterprise in the history of plaintiff's law. All told, it stole more than $100 million from the firm's clients, co-counsel, vendors, and many others unfortunate enough to do business with the firm. This paragraphs one and two <laughs> of this complaint, and it is so well written. And this is something that sometimes I think plaintiff's attorneys maybe do a better job at at the outset, is really telling their client's story and really writing a legal pleading, a complaint like this in a way that engages the reader. Mm -hmm. And it's important to remember, yeah, that judges, clerks, these people are still human. Our brains are hardwired to respond well to storytelling. I mean, this is written in a way that it, you're already engrossed. You'll be like, oh my, what happens next? Which is, I really <laughs> like that in a legal pleading. It's really good. Yeah. yeah. And it's 65 pages. We're not going to read every page. We'll read like a third of the complaint. But even still, the whole thing is very gripping and really well written. All right. Paragraph five. The basic scheme operated like this. When a new opportunity for cases came in, the firm would tap into its network of non-lawyers, sometimes called case runners, to find injured clients. These individuals were paid with cash for getting clients to hire the firm which is illegal, and would also take a cut of any eventual recovery for the client, which is also illegal. As just one example, defendant George Hatcher, a non-lawyer consultant who is responsible for referring the families of air crash victims, 
got hundreds of thousands of dollars to ensure that his referrals to Girardi were exclusive, along with a similarly illegal percentage of whatever the client eventually got. Erica acted as the front woman of the operation, selling to the world, including unsuspecting clients, that Girardi case was successful. And she was exceptionally good in the role. With tens of millions of dollars backing her, Erica shamelessly displayed a nationwide showroom of the money they stole on Real Housewives, famously spending $40,000 per month on her look and releasing a song called Expensive, featuring the refrain, It's Expensive to Be Me. And when push came to shove and the fraud was close to being exposed, Erica clamped down on misleading the public into believing that an otherwise damning lawsuit was false and that the plaintiffs behind it were forced to apologize to Tom and the firm. When the firm couldn't fund its operations with client money, it went to lenders, taking out tens of millions in financing. One creditor of Girardi Keys became a beneficiary of the scheme. Defendant Joseph DiNardo and his company defended California attorney lending. DiNardo continued to fund the firm into 2020, provided that he got a first cut of settlement money coming in from Girardi Keys cases, making sure that money was paid directly to his company before it ever hit a Girardi Keys account. That's not how any of this is supposed to work at all. Say, for example, you hire an attorney, you're in a personal injury case, you were in a car accident, you got rear-ended, your plaintiff's attorney gets a settlement for you, the check should come in from whatever insurance company or whoever is paying the settlement with the client's name on it in addition to the attorney's name. And then the client signs it with you, it gets deposited in the trust account, then there's an accounting of exactly how much the expenses were, if there were medical bills or deposition fees or whatever the expenses, and then it it specifically accounts the percentage that the lawyer is taking, the client signs that, so it, the client understands, then it, the money is removed from the trust account given to the client, and then you can pay yourself. So none of this is correct. All right. Well, yeah, this next paragraph yeah. repeats what you just <laughs> said, basically. When Girardi Key's clients agreed to settle their cases, the money that belonged to them was exclusively theirs and should only ever have been held briefly in trust before being immediately dispersed. Not a single cent of a client's money should have ever been funneled to a Girardi Keys operating account, to the firm's payroll, to a lender, or to an American Express bill. But time and time again, for over a decade, Girardi Keys only added to the pain and suffering of these victims, doing the unthinkable for a law firm, stealing their clients' money. And until recently, the firm, Tom, his partners, they got away with it. In order to pull off such a brazen and lengthy scam, Girardi Keys attorneys lied to, manipulated, or bribed anyone who might reveal the scheme. Tom would leverage his larger-than-life persona, carefully curated both on-screen through Erica and Housewives and off, and would wheedle and promise that anyone he owed money to would ultimately be made whole through his massive wealth and influence. When that didn't work, Tom would try to intimidate them. Tom cultivated the impression that not only was he a successful and powerful attorney, but he actually controlled the relevant authorities, including the agency charged with disciplining attorneys, the State Bar of California. Tom deployed his wealth and celebrity status to entertain state bar officials at lavish parties and reportedly went so far as to bribe a longtime investigator at the state bar. On those few occasions when someone actually brought suit against Tom or the firm, Variety Keys would frequently win on procedural grounds like a statute of limitations. Or, if things couldn't be solved that easily, enter into a confidential settlement that prevented the scheme from being detected. In December 2020, after uncovering that Girardi Keese appeared to have stolen the settlement monies of the families who lost loved ones in the tragic crash of Lion Air Flight JT-610, 
Plaintiff Edelson PC filed a motion seeking contempt. Within days of Edelson filing the contempt petition, the firm collapsed. Creditors put Tom and Girardi Keese into involuntary bankruptcy. But even after Edelson brought this scheme to light, Tom, Erica, Lyra, and Griffin, Lyra and Griffin, we've mentioned them before, they're two partners at Girardi Keese, former partners, continued to run the same playbook that they always have, bribe, lie, and or kick up as much dust as possible in order to hide their decades-long fraud. After Edelson's December 2020 filings, Tom tried to convince Edelson that things weren't as bad as they appeared and that it was all just a big misunderstanding. Just a quick reminder before I read more, all of this is directly from the complaint that was filed. These are all allegations being made in the case. We are not commenting on their truth or falsity or rereading them to say that they're true. These are just allegations in a legal complaint. All right. To this day, Erica uses her significant public platform to lie about her own involvement and to try to assist Tom and the others in getting away with it. Erica continuously doubles down in her efforts to mislead the public, including her recent jaw-dropping claim on Housewives that the victims whose money Tom stole might be lying about the theft, despite the findings of a federal judge to the contrary. Evidently, in response to a publicly filed draft version of this complaint, Erica was proud of allegations that she used Tom's tactics, taking it as a, quote, badge of honor. The following pages contain a detailed and exacting account of what Plaintiff Edelson has learned in the year and a half since it first blew the whistle on the girardi Keese firm, including how its attorneys cut illegal fee deals with non-lawyers, hid those facts from their own clients and co-counsel, and drew down, check by check, the client's settlement money to their own ends. These actions are federal crimes, all of which were carried out in furtherance of an illegal enterprise, the, quote, Girardi family enterprise. Plaintiffs seek treble damages, attorney's fees, and punitive damages for an amount in excess of $50 million. All right. That was already juicy in and of itself. Yes. But now we're reaching the factual background, and this is where there's more details. This is under heading A, which I just want to read as well in the factual background of the complaint. And it says, quote, Tom and Erica misappropriated client settlement money to project an image of wealth and prop up a lifestyle made for reality TV. Tom Girardi and the Girardi Keys firm presented themselves as a firm at the very top of the plaintiff's bar in injury cases. Girardi Keys took on major defendants, often representing numerous injured people from large scale disasters and secured billions in settlements. In turn, Tom, at least for a time, brought in extraordinary sums of money as an attorney and made sure that everyone knew it. Tom and Erica Girardi purposely portrayed themselves to the public as an extremely wealthy Beverly Hills power couple. When Erica joined the cast of The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills in 2015, she dazzled viewers by showing off their extravagant lifestyle and her exorbitant spending habits, including her never-ending parade of designer clothes and high-end jewelry, her $250,000 Lamborghini Huracan and her personal 24-7 Glam Squad team that she paid $40,000 per month to pick out her clothes and do her hair and makeup. Spending money was so much a part of Erica's personality on the show that she released a song called Expensive, which features the refrain, It's Expensive to Be Me. In her 2018 memoir, Pretty Mess, Erica readily bragged that she has the advantage of a, quote, strong checkbook and even discussed her and Tom's finances. Quote, now the haters are always going to say... All you do is spend your husband's money. First of all, it's our money. Know how I know? Because the IRS tells us that it is. My name is on the tax returns, too. The problem, though, was that the Girardi Keys firm was not actually making enough money to support Tom and Erica's outrageous lifestyle. 
This only worsened as Erica became a fixture on the housewife show, which required the two to perform their wealth sufficient to keep Erica in the national limelight for seasons at a time. Tom and Erica's lifestyle began to demand even more funds. When a plaintiff's case settles, it is both typical and legal for the funds to be sent to an account where the lawyer holds the client's money in a trust known as a client trust account. From there, an attorney can deduct an agreed-upon fee, but the remainder is the client's money and must be remitted immediately. It is a cardinal rule of any legitimate plaintiff's firm that the client money held in trust is sacrosanct. So Tom began to turn to a different source of funds. The victims of horrific and tragic accidents would come to Girardi Keese and put enormous trust in him. These individuals who became the firm's clients believed in Tom and the firm as he portrayed himself to the public, a fighter for their interests and an enormously successful one. And Tom enjoyed a key information advantage when it came to the victims he claimed to represent. He knew the legal world, and they did not. But Tom made the decision years ago that this rule did not apply to him. Instead, Tom made the shocking decision to treat the client trust account as a slush fund for him, for Erica, and to keep the firm afloat. The plan shared many characteristics with a classic Ponzi scheme. As clients' cases settled, the firm would siphon off some of the client's money to Tom and Erica's benefit to pay off old creditors and to keep the firm running. The firm would then delay client settlement payments until new money came in. From paragraph 50, Lyra and Griffin managed the law firm side of the Girardi family enterprise, both handling legal work to ensure a supply of client settlement money and managing the clients whose money the Girardi family enterprise needed to steal. In particular, after a settlement came in, Lyra and Griffin were responsible for lying and misleading both Girardi Keys' clients and its co-counsel. When it seemed as though a client or co-counsel was getting too close to blowing the operation and could not otherwise be placated, Lear and Griffin turned the communications over to Tom so that Tom could determine whether to pay that person or threaten them. I thought that was interesting he alleged that because when we watched the documentary and they had those recordings and then we see it in some of the pleadings, the transcripts of some of the recordings of calls, it's Girardi himself being like, oh, don't be mad at me. I'm the good guy. I'm trying to help you. I, I invested your money. Just awful. So paragraph 53, we've talked about this individual before. Cayman was the bookkeeper for the Girardi family enterprise, managing the finances both for Girardi Keese and for Erica's businesses. Ooh, I didn't know that part. If it's true. Cayman was responsible for the mechanics of the day-to-day theft required to keep Girardi Keese appearing to operate as a legitimate law firm, while simultaneously funding Erica and Tom's ultra-luxury lifestyle. When money came into the client trust account, it was Cayman's job to siphon it off into Girardi Keese's other accounts, where it was used to pay salaries, pay off old creditors, and benefit Tom and Erica. Attorney ethical rules prohibit sharing of fees with non-lawyers, but the Girardi family enterprise had long since dispensed with such niceties as professional ethics. This is a commentary for me, but that's a lovely shady sentence. <laughs> Back to the complaint. Knowing that Hatcher had few compunctions about unlawful referral arrangements, the firm entered into an illegal contingency fee arrangement with Hatcher that entitled him to 25% of the attorney's fees on all of the cases he generated. Yeah, and Hatcher is the case runner. From paragraph 59, while Tom, Cameron, Lyra, Griffin, and Hatcher directed and managed the affairs of the Girardi family enterprise, Erica knew of the scheme, intended to participate in it, and critically, sharing its profits both directly and through her wholly owned company, EJ Global. Despite her public claim that she and Tom were spending their own money, financial records show that more than $25 million of her own expenses were paid by Girardi Keese in furtherance of the Girardi family enterprise's illegal scheme. 
That includes more than 14 million in American Express charges that were made by Erica on a Girardi Keys card issued to her by the Girardi family enterprise, as well as more than 11 million in vendor payments that the Girardi family enterprise made for her benefit through the law firm. Erica was neither an owner nor employee of the law firm. None of the payments were legitimate law firm expenses. The 25 million in credit card charges and invoices that she sent to the firm for her payment were used to hire her glam squad, talent professionals, Emmons consultants, and to allow her to project an image of obscene wealth by spending massive amounts of money on clothes, purses, shoes, jewelry, and travel. Erica had actual and specific knowledge that the credit card bills and invoices that she submitted to Girardi Keese related to her own personal expenses had no connection whatsoever with the law firm. Erica had actual and specific knowledge that for at least 12 years, all her expenses were paid by the Girardi family enterprise through Girardi Keese as she was generating them. Finally, Tom knew that he needed to protect himself and the Girardi family enterprise from regulators, especially the state bar, the agency charged with regulating and disciplining attorneys in California. To insulate the enterprise, Tom took the state bar officials' employees to expensive restaurants and paid for meals, flew them around in his private jet, and hosted them at extravagant parties. As a result, despite the numerous complaints that were filed against Tom over the years and the dozens of lawsuits that were filed against him and Girardi Keys in the courts, the State Bar neglected to conduct a single investigation, allowing Tom to maintain a spotless record before the bar and enabling him to continue stealing from clients. All right, skipping ahead, the next heading is B, money begins to run out and Erica obfuscates to the media. Girardi Key's firm and Tom were routinely delinquent on debts to lenders, and the money dried up as lawsuits for payment began to increase. As cracks began to appear in the enterprise, Erica did her part to obfuscate. Erica was asked to comment on the lawsuit dozens of times. This was the lawsuit that we actually mentioned before in one of our episodes by various media outlets. Initially, Erica tried to brush off this lawsuit, saying, Listen, we're in the lawsuit business, baby. We sue and get sued. On March 27, 2019, Erica appeared on an episode of Watch What Happens Live. During the episode, a fan asked Erica if she, quote, she feels the need to cut back on her glam squad since her husband is being sued for a huge amount of money. The host of the show, Andy Cohen, acknowledged that they got get a lot of questions about this and asked Erica if there's anything she would like to say. Erica replied, uh, yeah, it's a lawsuit and you can't comment on it, but then added, I pay my own bills, so no, I don't. At this time, Erica knew that she did not, quote, pay her own bills, (laughs) and that her lifestyle was being funded entirely by Tom's law firm, which was exactly what the lawsuit was alleging. I want to pause here and say, if you were that fan who asked her that question, don't you feel so cool? I know. Knowing that. (laughs) Like, who was that fan? Yeah, the fan that got that question read out, cheers to you for getting your watch what happens live question In legal pleadings. Good work. A few months later, on May 24, 2019, another lender, Stillwell Madison, filed its own lawsuit against Tom, Girardi Keese, and for the first time, Erica herself. This lawsuit was newsworthy both because it named Erica as a defendant and specifically alleged that Tom had misappropriated the loan to support he and Erica's high-end lifestyle and to maintain their glamorous public image. Stillwell also alleged that Tom transferred more than $5 million of the loan to Erica for her and Tom's personal use instead of business purposes. At that point, 
Erica began using her celebrity status and platform on Housewives to protect her and Tom's public image by lying about the true nature of their mounting legal and financial troubles. Two weeks later, during filming for the Housewives Season 9 reunion episode, the host, Andy Cohen, asked Erica if she was trying to stir up drama with her castmates to bury negative stories about her and Tom's legal problems. Erica responded by claiming that the legal issues were resolved and they apologized, indicating that the two lawsuits had been resolved and that both LFG and Stillwell have apologized for suing her, which was not true. As with her false statement about paying her own bills a few months earlier, Erica made this false statement to protect her and Tom's public image and to hold their countless other creditors at bay. This lie about the lawsuits being resolved and they apologized demonstrates that Erica had specific knowledge that her financial arrangement with Girardi Keese was inappropriate and needed to be hidden from creditors using any means necessary. Erica was fully aware of the breadth and power of her platform and knew that her false statements would further her and Tom's scheme by ensuring that their hordes of creditors continued to believe that they were wealthy and that clients would continue to hire Tom and trust him with their money. Erica continues to use her platform to deny evidence of the enterprise's wrongdoing and to sow doubt as to the Lion Air family's losses. In an episode of Real Housewives of Beverly Hills, broadcast in June 2022, so that's this season, Erica opined on national television that, quote, we're not even sure that there were people that weren't paid. When asked if there was a chance that they can be lying, Erica said that there was. Erica knows, and at the time of filming knew, that the United States District Court for the Northern District of Illinois determined that the families of Anise, Bias, Dian, and Septiana did not receive the amount due to them, so those are the victims of the Lion Air tragedy, and entered judgment personally against her husband in the amount of $2 million. And just another little comment from me. Edelson is staying in his lane here, but Erica also was fully aware that Regomez had a judgment Mm -hmm. against them, and she had been served personally with process. We talked about this before. So she knows. She knows that they didn't get paid, and she knows that there is an enforceable judgment entered for Regomez. And she was fully aware of it, not just from being served with process, but also from the bankruptcy proceedings. She was fully aware. She's fully aware. Yeah. And Regomez is the, the main victim in the Hulu documentary. Just a refresher. Okay, so then Edelson goes on to talk about the Lion Air plane crash tragedy, and he says the Girardi family enterprise springs into action. To most people, plane crashes are horrible and devastating events. To the Girardi family enterprise, plane crashes and other catastrophic events were golden opportunities to commit crimes. This crash in particular came at just a time when the Girardi family enterprise was growing more and more desperate for money. When news of the Lion Air crash hit the wires, the Girardi family enterprise sprung into action to immediately begin soliciting the surviving family members. As Hatcher had done for the Hatcher's the case runner guy, had done for the Girardi family enterprise before, he set out to recruit victims' families from the Lion Airplane crash to refer them to Girardi Keys and act as a liaison between them and the attorneys. I think you made a point before, but I think it's worth mentioning again here that there's like the ambulance chaser stigma with a lot of plaintiffs firms. I think you had made like a, a point kind of negating that and how there are credible plaintiffs attorneys. Do you remember that? There are there are credible plaintiffs attorneys. There are plaintiffs attorneys that follow ethical rules. I would think twice about trusting a plaintiff's attorney with a private plane. I think what you had said it was something to the effect of like 
even if you're being contacted by plaintiff's attorneys, like that doesn't mean they're all awful and to do your due diligence. Because, yeah, this makes it sound like they ran to the victims, which happens. But I mean, the, the laws are different in different jurisdictions for how when when a, a plaintiff's counsel is allowed to contact a potential victim, a lot of the laws are fairly strict and prohibit exactly the types of things that are being alleged here. If you have concerns about that, you can contact your local bar association. So for whatever state you're in, just put your state's name and bar association, and there's resources there to help individuals. Let's say you have been in a catastrophic accident or maybe a close family member has, and you are suddenly getting contacted by plaintiff's counsel. I think a good sign as to whether or not a plaintiff's attorney is ethical is if they're obeying the ethical rules about contacting you. I would think twice about trusting one that contacts you in a way that is violating ethical rules. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. All right. So heading E in the complaint, Tom and Erica go to DiNardo and his companies for litigation funding. And so this is after they secure the victims of the Lion Air crash, the families as clients. Armed with a slate of new clients with high value claims, Tom sought yet another round of litigation funding to fuel the Girardi family enterprise. The problem, as discussed above, was that by 2019, no legitimate lender wanted to do business with Tom. As such, Tom turned to his close friend, Joseph DiNardo, and company California Attorney Lending for help, likely because he still owed them millions of dollars on loans he had taken out several years earlier. DiNardo and his companies, therefore, had a personal interest in the longevity and continued success of the Girardi family enterprise. 
So Reddit sleuths on Bravo Real Housewives, some of you will be very familiar with this because this is one of the documents that y'all brought up that Erica signed. It's mentioned in paragraph 90 of this complaint, which says, on September 17, 2019, Erica personally signed an agreement, a first lien on her and Tom's assets with DiNardo's company, California Attorney Lending. The agreement stated, I am married to Thomas V. Girardi. We have been together for more than 20 years. I agree that California Attorney Lending 2, Inc. has a first lien on any assets owned by Thomas V. Girardi and any assets that are community property. Again, we're not commenting as to whether or not this is accurate, but we're just reading what was in the complaint. Paragraph 91. Just a month later, on October 21st, 2019, Erica personally signed another agreement, this time with California Attorney Lending's sister company, Council Financial, stating, it is agreed that any obligation from the law firm to Thomas Girardi, the estate of Thomas Girardi, is waived until Council Financial is paid off in full. I am the sole heir. Paragraph 92 of this complaint. The fact that Erica personally signed these agreements proves that at least as early on as September 17th and October 25th, 2019, Erica had actual and specific knowledge that she and Tom were on the hook for significant debt and that a lender had to be paid in full before her and Tom took any more money from Girardi Keys. In exchange for the additional loans, Tom agreed that California Attorney Lending would receive 50% of the attorney's fees from various cases when they settle, including from the Lion Air clients. In that same paragraph, it says DiNardo included terms in the 2019 loan documents that required the settling defendants in the covered cases to wire their 50% portion of the attorney's fees directly to California attorney lending. That's bad. All right. So heading F, the Lion Air litigation and settlement. Paragraph 99. Overcommitting the fees on the Lion Air case shows that the Lion Air client's money had already been sucked into the Ponzi scheme. Before money ever came in, more than 100% of the fees had been promised to go out, meaning that the money was either going to come from someone's share of the fees or far worse, the client's money. Yeah, and we're skipping ahead. G, the Girardi family enterprise steals the Lion Air client's settlement and commits hundreds of federal crimes in the process. The Girardi family enterprise never intended to safeguard the Lion Air client's settlement funds in the Girardi Keys client trust account. Instead, the Girardi family enterprise agreed to systematically steal the funds and use them to cover payroll from expenses, payments to clients whose money the firm had previously stolen, outstanding bills to lenders, and Erica's credit cards and invoices. Okay, and then it goes into the purported evidence for each of the later claims. And the first is wire fraud. And it is from March 4th, 2020 through September 24th, 2020. They list a number of checks with dates and amounts and say that at the time the checks listed in table one were deposited, both Cayman and the person, Cayman was the finance guy for the firm and Erica, both Cayman and the person signing the checks knew that Girardi Keese was not entitled to attorney's fees from the Lion Air matters in the amount listed on the checks. Each knew that the entire amount of attorney's fees owed to Girardi Keese had already been transferred directly from Boeing to California Attorney Lending. And that goes to the paragraph Angela read about how California Attorney Lending in the agreement said that the settlement monies would be wired directly to California Attorney Lending. And yet they're over here dispersing fees directly to Girardi Key still, 
according to the complaint. Between April 8, 2020 and September 4, 2020, the Enterprise issued the checks listed in Table 2 from the Girardi Keys client trust account at Tory Pines Bank on or about the date shown, which totaled $2,598,000. All were payable to Girardi Keys and deposited into Girardi Keys' operating account at Nano Bank. Yeah, so these are more checks with dates and numbers and memo lines and amounts. The Girardi Family Enterprise used memo lines with these two case numbers to draw checks on Girardi Keese's client trust accounts that appeared to be for attorney's fees, but were in fact embezzlement. So another episode that we've previously done that's a good one to listen to is our Jersey versus Girardi episode where we talk about Big Frank and how Big Frank got disbarred for inappropriately taking a very small amount of money from a client trust account and then paying it back. And he even had the clients testify that they were okay with it. But the New Jersey bar, the ethics people found that they didn't believe that the way that was handled was done honestly. And Big Frank got disbarred and can no longer practice law. I don't know how egregious this sounds to non-lawyers, but just even though Ceci and I already know about this and have been covering it for a long time, just looking at this and then looking at the actual checks is just so egregious. So he says, at the time the checks listed in tables one and two were deposited, both Cayman and the person signing the checks knew that the money used to pay the checks would come from the Lion Air settlement funds. The next claim is money laundering, engaging in monetary transactions and property derived from specific unlawful activity, and it's from March 5th, 2020 through October 5th, 2020. After embezzling the Lion Air settlement funds, the enterprise used those funds both to dole out profits to the members of the enterprise and to keep the enterprise functioning. And it goes on to list more checks, like 30 more checks. On behalf of the enterprise, came and deposited each of the checks listed in this table into Girardi Keese's payroll account. I just think it's interesting when you can see how much people get paid. Paragraph 123, Lyra and Griffin were paid a gross salary of greater than $10,000 every two weeks during the period they worked at Girardi Keese. After March 5th, 2020, each paycheck was derived from the enterprise's proceeds of the embezzlement of the Lion Air settlement funds. So they're saying here, to summarize, that the settlement monies from the Lion Air case, instead of going to the victims, instead of being paid out, it went to go pay the wages of secretaries, intake personnel, and other non-lawyer staff to keep the firm running, and then payroll, attorney payroll. Yeah, and they also say thousands of dollars of those payments were for Erica's company, EJ Global, and could only have come from an East Chasm settlement. Moving on. Next is wire fraud, money laundering, engaging in monetary transactions and property derived from specific unlawful activity, March 24th, 2020 through April 20th, 2020. Okay, so this part is redacted, so we'll just say blank. According to blank, Lyra, so this is a partner at Tom's firm, agreed to pay blank 20% of his fees plus out-of-pocket costs. In a declaration executed under penalty of perjury and filed in the Superior Court of California, County of San Diego, Lyra represented that blank firm had incurred costs in the amount of $67,292 and sought court approval of those costs. However, according to Blank, Lyra did not pay as agreed. Blank email further demanded payment in full. Cayman and Lyra thus intended for the check to be covered by the proceeds of the money embezzled from the Lion Air settlement funds by way of wire fraud, 
The check was indeed paid using those proceeds. So this is claiming that he had a judgment entered in against him, Lyra, to pay, I assume as a co-counsel in a case, money that they were owed. And Lyra is alleged to have used Lion Air settlement funds to abide by that court order. Yeah. Paragraph 130 is pretty damning. It says, within minutes of receiving the blank email, that's the email that Sessie was referring to, Lyra forwarded it to Chris Kamen and Tom Girardi. Kamen responded solely to Lyra, asking, quote, how much do we owe him? Lyra responded with another question, have we wired any money to the Lion Air clients? Kamen responded, nope. On, a, on or about April 2nd, 2020, Lion Air client Diane Daniati sent David Lyra and Keith Griffin an email that read, Dear Mr. David and Mr. Lyra, Mr. David and Mr. Keith, can you lend me $40,000? I really need it right now. I have business if waiting for liquid Boeing money. There is still no certainty. Thank you very much. Lyra forwarded the email to George Hatcher approximately four minutes after receiving it with the notation FYI. Hatcher, this is the case runner, quickly responded to Lyra, Griffin, and Cayman, quote, My recommendation, if Diane is funded, get an okay and send her the money. If you don't have the money, advance her the 40. The repayment is solid. Cayman replied to Hatcher later that day, again copying Griffin and Lyra, Tom just gave the okay to advance the $40,000. It's too late to process today, so I will process the wire first thing Monday. Lyra and Griffin both knew that the $40,000 was not a loan. It was Diane Daniati's own money, which Girardi Keys had received into its client trust account a month earlier on March 11, 2020. Lyra, Griffin, Girardi, Cayman, and Hatcher intended for Hatcher to falsely represent to Diane Daniati that the $40,000 was a loan from Girardi Keys so that she did not question why she had not received her settlement funds. The Girardi family enterprise sent Diane Daniati the $40,000 loan, quote, for the purpose of buying time to replace the settlement funds it had already stolen from her. On December 9, 2021, during an evidentiary hearing on whether he should be held in contempt of the court, Lyra gave the following false testimony. Question. Why was $40,000 sent to Miss Diane on April 6? Answer. I have no knowledge why. Question. Did you know at the time that $40,000 had been wired to Miss Diane? Answer, I did not. As the email above shows, Lyra knew this testimony was false. That's not just false testimony. That's false testimony to a federal judge in a contempt hearing. If this is all true. Again, this is the allegations in the complaint. Just crazy. There's more. There's more. April 8th, 2020, TXI Riverside Cement Fraud. This is mail fraud and money laundering that is being alleged, the federal statutes. On April 8, 2020, on behalf of the enterprise, Cayman prepared and Lyra personally signed 115 checks drawn on the Girardi Keys client trust account at Torrey Pines Bank, payable to Girardi Keys clients who were owed money in relation to their settlements in a mass tort case against TXI, Riverside Cement, and related entities. The checks, detailed in Appendix A, totaled $150,942.65. Cameron and Lear intended for the money used to cover those checks to be covered by the proceeds of the money embezzled from the Lion Air settlement funds by way of wire fraud. The checks were indeed paid using those proceeds. Paragraph 147. On or about April 8, 2020, the Girardi family enterprise mailed a letter to Catherine J. Hollis. Specifically, Tom Girardi's secretary, Kim Corey, took dictation of the letter from Tom 
printed it out, and then deposited it in the United States mail. The statements in the letter to Ms. Hollis are part of a fraudulent scheme. The letter stated, It's being alleged that these are the words that Tom had dictated into the letter. I have never been involved in a matter which has been more frustrating than the TXI case. Making sure to satisfy the liens, getting medical evaluations, etc., have been very difficult. Further, Judge Pratt wanted large groups of clients to be paid at the same time. We are, however, doing pretty well in doing so. We don't have final clearance for this particular group, but to show my good faith, we are sending out 50% of what you are entitled to right now. I believe we will send the other 50% in 30 days. As of the date of the letter, there were no legitimate delays in sending out the settlement money. Rather, the Girardi family enterprise had previously stolen Miss Hollis's money and needed to wait for other clients' money to come in before it could pay Miss Hollis. The letter to Miss Hollis claiming to pay 50% of the amount owed is a communication intended to lull her into a false sense of security, postpone any complaint to the authorities, and therefore make discovery of criminal act scheme less likely. If you guys watched the Housewife and the Hustler, the Hulu special, and you got to see a lot of the victims talking about similar things that happened to them, and then hear recordings of Girardi just sounding pathetic and like, oh, don't get mad at me, I'm the good guy. You can see here that Edelson is alleging, look, that's not like a discreet one-time event. This has been going on. It's a pattern and practice of behavior. This is part of an ongoing criminal enterprise to continue stealing money from victims. April 18th, 2020. Lyra lies to Bias, Anise, Septiana, and Dion. April 18th, 2020. David Lyra sent the following email. Good morning. First, I want to thank you for your patience during this unfortunate pandemic. Our office has been closed since March 16th as a result of government mandates. It has been extremely difficult to run the day-to-day -day law office operations without employees present. Rest assured, we are doing everything we can with limited staff. Tom Girardi has final say as to all wire transfers. It's on his, quote, to-do list. Our office is closed today due to a massive sanitation disinfectant effort due to a COVID scare this week. I will keep you advised. I hope you and your families are safe and sound. David. The email was substantially false. Lyra knew both that the fact that the Lion Air clients hadn't received their funds had nothing to do with COVID-related closures and that transferring the money was not on Girardi's to-do list. Lyra sent this email intending to lull the victims into a false sense of security, postpone their ultimate complaint to the authorities, and therefore make the discovery of the enterprise's criminal scheme less likely. So... Multiple times in this complaint, it says, with regard to these letters or draft letters that Edelson alleges were sent, nearly every sentence in this draft letter is false. The only problem that Girardi needed to take care of was that the enterprise had stolen so much of Bias's money that it couldn't pay him. There was no tax issue. And it's talking about their excuses. Oh, well, there's a tax issue. That's why you can't have this. Oh, why? There's, you know, something going on. Yeah. So you can't have this. Yeah, so they had sent this email and specifically put that they had tax issues and that's why they couldn't pay them. So these were drafts that had been sent around. And then Lyra responded and said, these are smart people. There are no tax issues. So being like, hey, this lie. <laughs> yeah. They're, they're too smart. They're going to figure out this lie. Paragraph 169 is an allegation in the complaint that's particularly damning. It says, a few minutes later, Lyra wrote to the secretary again saying, Quote, I wouldn't send any of these letters. They are lies and could come back to haunt Tom. He did not instruct her not to send the letters. When the secretary informed him that two had already gone out, Lear responded, quote, Tom will have to be ready 
for an onslaught of inquiries. They all talk and all other victims have received their compensation. End quote. Lyra took no action to correct the lies in the letters. Paragraph 170. Lyra's belated emails to the secretary were designed to conceal the fraud and make it appear to anyone receiving the emails later that he attempted to stop Girardi from lying to the clients. In fact, Lyra was aware that the information in the letters would be shared among all of the Lion Air clients, and he had the specific intent that the lulling lies in those letters would cause them all not to take action. Another comment for me at this point, I think I've mentioned this in a different episode briefly, but there's a lot of jurisdictions, a lot of states that have what's colloquially called the rat rule, where attorneys, if they're aware of another attorney, even if it's in their own firm, committing an ethical violation, that they are required to report that. Apparently, California did not have that rule. All right. This is another one. This is about Hatcher, the case runner. He's asking to get now his money. I guess he had an agreement with Tom, according to this complaint, to receive 10% of the total recovery in the Lion Air matters. But Tom had also allocated him $50,000 more, unconnected to work in any specific case. It was just like a thank you for working with us bonus. So Hatcher emails came in. So Hatcher, the case runner, emails came in, the accounting guy, to request one of these $50,000 payments explicitly from client trust accounts. He said, quote, it would be smarter, maybe, if you paid me like I used to be paid, right from trust. That way I don't have to rely on the general account. Of course I don't care. LOL. Just suggesting. <laughs> At the time he sent the email, Hatcher knew that he was not legally entitled to $50,000 of any Girardi Keese's client's money and was therefore not legally entitled to be paid from client trust account. He also knew that the payment he was requesting from the client trust was in addition to the illegal one-third cut of the fee he was promised. So while accepting funds stolen from Lion Air clients, Hatcher, the case runner that's getting this $50,000 plus 10% of the fees, was simultaneously communicating with them via a WhatsApp group chat that included Hatcher, Bias, Septiana, Anis, Dion, Altahar, and an Indonesian interpreter. So for some reason, the case runner guy is in a group chat with these clients. So April 18th, 2020, Hatcher, the sort of case runner enters into this there's an excerpt of this group chat that even has the emojis printed in the complaint it's not as good as the complaint against elon musk i will just say <laughs> but there is a group chat in there and what it is we're just going to summarize it is george hatcher messaging these victims basically saying oh you have their attention all i'm here for you they have to wait on Tom's approval don't worry about it it's coming i promised all of you i'll be here for you and one of them even responds to this Hatcher person who is illegally, according to this complaint, getting portions of their funds. You are the savior when David and Lyra don't reply to our mail. And there's texting these victims of this horrible tragedy are then texting Hatcher smiley face emojis, which just makes me sad, honestly, looking at it. Hatcher even goes out of his way to say to all of them in the group chat, you need to give the lawyers time to reply. As far as I know, they are not working. Hard to believe the office has been closed for almost two months. At the time he made that statement, Hatcher knew that Girardi Keese's office was open, that the accounting department was processing payments, including to him, and that Lyra and Griffin were continuing to finalize other settlements with Boeing. On August 13, 2020, Hatcher also convinced one of the victims to send an email to Tom instead of sending one to Boeing's attorneys at Perkins Coie. 
Hatcher then sent an email to Tom advising Tom that he had done so. So this this client was thinking of going directly to Boeing, Boeing's attorneys, and being like, hey, we haven't received our payment. What's going on? And Hatcher convinced them to do otherwise and email Tom instead. And had that person actually emailed Boeing's attorneys, they probably would have known then and there firsthand that the settlement payment had already been paid to Girardi Keys. Hatcher also convinced another victim to agree to wait until November 29, 2020, to receive her payment. On October 30, 2020, Hatcher wrote to Tom via email, you cannot imagine what it took to get Anise to agree to the November date. And this is commentary for me, but if these allegations are true, again, that just is so egregious. And you can see how this, at least for these people, it would make sense to allege a conspiracy and a RICO claim because they're all working together, according to this complaint, to further this criminal enterprise, allegedly. And then shortly after Erica filed for divorce from Tom, one of the victims texts Hatcher again, asking whether Girardi Keese had read their email. And George Hatcher replies, not to take it personally, that Tom's that way, that the email is no doubt printed on his desk. I'm guessing. I haven't talked to Tom since I learned about the divorce. I promise to get right back to you if I hear something before. That goes for all of you. Ugh. The, the oh God. He sends another text to this group chat with the, the clients again and says, in my own life, I've always found that when I'm nice and especially patient, I get more accomplished. I wish I had an answer for all of you about the delays, but I don't. So he's telling them to keep being patient. This is November 11th, 2020. I think it's been a year since the funds were paid by Boeing. So it's just, it's gross. It's, it's, I, again, the allegations in this complaint, what's alleged is so egregious. And all of these people, according to these screenshots of communications and, you know, the quotes from emails in the complaint, it's, they just appear to be so comfortable just pushing these people off basically saying, we'll pay them when we get to it. It's not important. And then there's Hatcher messaging, according to this complaint, Girardi Keys attorneys, basically showing how he's working hard to earn his illegal, allegedly fee. So eventually, and this is from paragraph 213, one of the victims says, I know your firm has received money from Boeing and somehow you're using the money for something else for your own benefit. That's why you guys keep silent all this time. Please convey my message to Mr. Girardi. If I haven't received the money by the end of the week, I will notify the state bar about this misconduct. And then paragraph 214, Griffin knew that Multi's accusations were true. However, he did not say so. Instead, he responded to Multi's email on November 10th, 2020 via email using wire communications and interstate and foreign commerce. Griffin's email read, Multi, I understand and I have printed your message for Mr. Girardi. I also told you that I would confirm with the accounting department that your funds were received into Girardi Trust and I have received confirmation that the funds were received. I can also assure you that I've asked Mr. Girardi to send you the funds to which you are entitled. I will update you as soon as I have any further information. However, Griffin didn't stop there. On or about November 11, 2020, Griffin also called the individual who had signed up multi with Girardi Keys. During this phone call, Griffin was in California and the other individual was in Virginia. On the call, he asked this individual to speak to multi and convince him to wait until the end of November before taking any action to report the Girardi family enterprise to the authorities. That, that's bad. If it's true, that's bad. And these are, this is all stuff from emails. 
So part of the reason why we're reading you guys so many specific examples from this complaint is because, again, this is a complaint alleging a civil RICO case. And if you remember from the elements that we talked about in the beginning, this is this is Edelson trying to show, look, this is a long, wide-ranging criminal enterprise. All of these people were working in connection to further these criminal, like the overall goal of this conspiracy, which was to be able to continue this Ponzi scheme, essentially, of getting money, using it for other things, and then eventually, when they got around to it, paying victims back with other settlement money and keeping that going. Okay, so H. Erica uses her platform to protect the Girardi family enterprise and the divorce. Paragraph 221. While the core members of the Girardi family enterprise were defrauding the clients and stealing their money, Erica became increasingly aware that the money was drying up and that creditors were circling her. On May 22, 2020, Erica was personally served with a subpoena to produce documents related to her assets by Joe Gomez, by Joe Gomez, a burn victim that was suing Tom for stealing 11 million from his settlement through the Ponzi scheme. A few months later, on August 31st, 2020, Erica appeared on Marie Claire's Precious Metal series to show off her jewelry collection. Unprompted, she bizarrely remarked, "People ask me, will you give your jewelry away? I'm like, to who? No one deserves these." She also showed off an evil eye necklace that she says she bought for herself, claiming it was to me, from me, when in reality, all of her spending money came from Girardi Keys through the Ponzi scheme. On September 28, 2020, Erica was personally served for the second time with the subpoena in the Rigomas case, requiring her to furnish information to aid enforcement of a money judgment against you. This is what we talked about before. Yeah. <laughs> but she knew there was a money judgment. Despite the mounting lawsuits and collection efforts, Erica continued to both defend Tom and project an image of wealth and frivolous spending when the housewife's cameras were rolling. But that changed on October 19, 2020, when a court entered an attachment order against Erica and Tom's property for $6 million, which marked the first time that any court in any of the cases filed against Tom over the years entered an attachment order against him. At that point, Erica knew that the ruse was over, and it was only a matter of time before the assets were seized. She filed for divorce just two weeks later on November 2, 2020, in a sham attempt to protect her assets from creditors. The, quote, divorce was timed perfectly, as just a few weeks later, the scheme was uncovered, and Tom and his firm were forced into bankruptcy by an avalanche of creditors, including clients such as the widows and orphans of the Lion Air crash, as well as lenders and other lawyers. There was an attachment order of $6 million on October 19th. And that just provides a an additional reason, which is just crazy. I think you've heard from some of our previous episodes. We were all watching last season when Erica kept saying she didn't know. And then she kept giving these other reasons for divorcing Tom. And we posted a timeline on our website. And then we also talked about it in episodes that she was personally served as Edelson is mentioning here, and had a, an attachment order on the assets entered by a court before she filed for divorce. Also, she was personally named in the lawsuit, the Silva Madison lawsuit, which she was asked about in Watch What Happens Live. So Erica claiming on TV that she had no knowledge and that she was divorcing Tom, not because of any of this stuff happening, but because he wasn't either nice to her or he had changed or he had suffered a traumatic brain injury just 
a lot of people were having trouble thinking that that had any ring of truth to it. It would have made a lot more sense if she would have just said, I didn't know about any of this. When I found out that he was being accused of these things, yeah, I filed for divorce immediately. I think anybody would have understood that would have made sense, right? I mean, would, yeah. would you have looked at it differently if she had just said, look, I had no idea any of this was going on. He hasn't told me a thing about the finances. And now I'm getting served with lawsuits saying that I'm part of it. Absolutely not. I am done. I am divorcing this man. Apparently, this is not what I thought it was. Yeah, I think that's what everyone expected her to do. That's why Garcelle was like, are you angry with Tom? Yeah. Because she wasn't sharing that anger on TV. It was like she was more angry that the lawsuits were happening against her. And it just doesn't it doesn't jive with her saying that she had no idea what was going on with the money. She should have been doing exactly what you said. Like, how dare he? Of course, I'm divorcing him. But there was none of that last season. No, it was I'm divorcing him because he said a mean thing about me being expensive one time to some other people or he's got dementia and he's repeating things over and over again, which I never understood that either. I felt like that's even worse. So you marry a man that's 22 years older than you. You're married to him for 21 years. And then when he starts getting elderly, oh, I'm divorcing him because he's got dementia from this car accident. Then you're abandoning this man that supported you for 21 years at the time that he needs you the most. So either that's true or he's mean to you or you are divorcing him because you realized he doesn't have any money left. It just doesn't. It, her behavior was so bizarre. So we originally promised that this would be a full episode covering everything Erica has been recently facing. But that complaint is just too juicy. We had to read it all or most of it. So we're going to split this up into two. Our next episode will cover the rest of the factual allegations against Erica and the claims. And then we'll discuss the three other lawsuits she's facing. And then some other additional, like the serving of the papers and everything else. We'll keep reporting on this. Yeah. And I want to note, we're not reporting on this because we're anti-Erica. No. Which, as a fan, I don't like her. But that's not why we're reporting on this. We're getting questions from all of you, or most of you, about what is going on. And that's our goal here, just to read it and to provide you with information on what's going on. Right. We're reading allegations from a federal complaint that's been filed. We are hoping to give you more of an understanding about this. And then we're giving you the law so that you can practice thinking like a lawyer and decide, okay, do I think that the allegations meet these elements and do I think it was reasonable and how do I feel about how the law works and what's being alleged? We're not just trying to pick on Erica. I've also noticed people complaining. No one's been really harping on Coach Shaw the way people are talking about Erica. And I don't think that's a fair comparison. Erica said so many statements that don't make sense. She's denied things. She has flat out denied the victim's even being owed money in this season. Personally, I think it's fair if we're looking at that, not critical to criticize, but examining those statements critically, saying, does this comport with some of the actual facts that we know? I don't think that's wrong to do. Well, I mean, another reason we're reporting on Erica and not Coach Shaw is because Coach Shaw doesn't have any lawsuits filed against Correct. him. Correct. Correct. He doesn't have any federal charges against him. He doesn't have any civil lawsuits against him, I feel confident that 
the federal government did such a thorough and intensive job of investigating the scheme that Jen Shaw recently pled guilty to, that they would have no problem indicting Coach Shaw if they thought he was involved. Like we talked about in our sentencing episode, in Jen's scheme that she has not pled guilty to, the co-defendants, a couple of them were husband and wife, and they both got indicted. Yeah. All right. So we'll end that here. Thanks for listening. Bye, guys. The Bravo Docket is part of the ACAST Creator Network.